we present Monkey. An abridged translation of the great Chinese classic Journey to the West, written by Wu Chung-un, translated by Arthur Whaley, and narrated by Bob Jones. Chapter 19 Tripitaka sat in the Zen Hall of the Treasurewood Temple under the lamp. He recited the Water Litany of the Liang Emperor and read through the true scripture of the peacock. It was now the third watch, 12 p.m., and he put his books back into their bag and was just going to get up and go to bed when he heard a great banging outside the gate and felt a dank blast of ghostly wind. Fearing the lamp would be blown out, he hastened to screen it with his sleeve, but the lamp continued to flicker in the strangest way, and Tripitaka began to tremble. He was, however, very tired, and presently he lay down across the reading desk and dozed. Although his eyes were closed, he still knew what was going on about him, and in his ears still sounded the dank wind that moaned outside the window. And when the wind had passed by, he heard a voice outside the Zen Hall whispering, Master. Tripitaka raised his head, and in his dream he saw a man standing there, dripping from head to foot with tears in his eyes, and continually murmuring, Master! Master! Tripitaka sat up and said, What can you be but a hobgoblin, evil spirit, monster or foul bogey, that you should come to this place and molest me in the middle of the night? But I must tell you that I am no common scrambler in the greedy world of man. I am a great and illustrious priest who, at the bidding of the Emperor of Tang, am going to the West to worship the Buddha and seek scriptures. And I have three disciples, each of whom is adept in quelling dragons and subduing tigers, removing monsters and making away with bogies. If these disciples were to see you, they would grind you to powder. I tell you this for your own good, in kindness and compassion. You had best hide at once, and not set foot in this place of meditation." But the man drew nearer to the room and said, "'Master, I am no hobgoblin, evil spirit, monster, nor foul bogey either.' "'If you are none of these things,' said Tripitaka, "'what are you doing here at depth of night?' "'Master,' said the man, Rest your eyes upon me, and look at me well." When Tripitaka looked at him with a fixed gaze, and saw that there was a crown upon his head and a scepter at his waist, and that he was dressed and shod as only a king can be. When Tripitaka saw this, he was much startled and amazed. At once he bowed down and cried out with a loud voice, "'Of what court is your majesty the king? I beg you! be seated. But the hand he stretched to help the king to his seat plunged through empty space. Yet when he was back in his seat and looked up, the man was still there. Tell me, your majesty, he cried, of what are you emperor, of where are you king? 
Doubtless there were troubles in your land, wicked ministers rebelled against you, and at midnight you fled for your life. What is your tale? Tell it for me to hear. Master, he said, my home is due west of here, only forty leagues away, and that place there is a city moated and walled, and this city is where my kingdom was founded. And what is its name? asked Tripitaka. I will not deceive you, he said. When my dynasty was set up there, a new name was given to it, and it was called Crow-Cock. But tell me, said Tripitaka, what brings you here in such consternation? Master, he said, five years ago there was a great drought. The grass did not grow, and my people were all dying of hunger. It was pitiful indeed. Tripitaka nodded. Your Majesty, he said, there is an ancient saying, Heaven favours where virtue rules. I fear you have no compassion for your people, for now that they are in trouble, you leave your city. Go back and open your storehouses, sustain your people, repent your misdeeds, and do present good twofold to make recompense. Release from captivity any whom you have unjustly condemned, and heaven will see to it that rain comes and the winds are tempered. All the granaries in my kingdom were empty, he said. I had neither cash nor grain. My officers, civil and military, were unpaid, and even at my own board no relish could be served. I have shared sweet and bitter with my people no less than you the great when he quelled the floods. I have bathed and done penance. Morning and night I have burned incense and prayed. For three years it was like this, till the rivers were all empty, the wells dry. Suddenly, when things were at their worst, there came a magician from the Chungnan Mountains, who could call the winds and summon the rain, and make stones into gold. First he obtained audience with my many officers, civil and military, and then with me. At once I begged him to mount the altar and pray for rain. He did so and was answered. No sooner did his magic tablet resound than floods of rain fell. I told him three feet would be ample, but he said after so long a drought, it took a lot to soak the ground and he brought down another two inches. And I, seeing him to be of such great powers, prostrated myself before him and treated him henceforth as my elder brother. This was a great piece of luck, said Tripitaka. Whence should my luck come? asked he. Why, said Tripitaka, if your magician could make rain when you wanted it, and gold whenever you needed it, what did you lack that you must needs leave your kingdom and come to me here? For two years, he said, he was my fellow at board and bed. Then at springtime, when all the fruit trees were in blossom, and young men and girls from every house, gallants from every quarter, went out to enjoy the sights of spring, there came a time when my officers had all returned to their desks, 
and the ladies of the court to their bowers. I, with that magician, went slowly stepping hand in hand, till we came to the flower garden and to the eight-cornered crystal well. Here he threw down something, I do not know what, and at once there was a great golden light. He led me to the well side, wondering what treasure was in the well. Then he conceived an evil intent, and with great shove pushed me into the well, then took a paving stone and covered the well top and sealed it with clay, and planted a banana plant on top of it. Pity me, I have been dead three years. I am the phantom unavenged of one that perished at the bottom of a well. When the man said that he was a ghost, Tripitaka was terrified. His legs grew flabby beneath him, and his hair stood on end. Controlling himself at last, he asked him, saying, Your Majesty's story is hard to reconcile with reason. You say you have been dead for three years. How is it that in all this time none of your officers, civil and military, nor of your queens and concubines and chamberlains have ever come to look for you? I have told you already, the man said, of the magician's powers. There can be few others like him in the world. He had but to give himself a shake, and there and then, in the flower garden, he changed himself into the exact image of me. And now he holds my rivers and hills, and has stolen away my kingdom. All my officers, the four hundred gentlemen of my court, my queens, and concubines, all, all are his. Your Majesty is easily daunted, said Tripitaka. Easily daunted? he asked. Yes, said Tripitaka. That magician may have strange powers, turn himself into your image, steal your lands, your officers knowing nothing, and your ladies unaware. But you that were dead, at least, knew that you were dead. Why did you not go to Yama, King of Death, and put in a complaint? The magician's power, he said, is very great, and he is on close terms with the clerks and officers of death. The spirit of wall and moat is forever drinking with him. All the dragons of the sea are his kinsmen. The god of the eastern peak is his good friend. The ten kings of judgment are his cousins. I should be barred in every effort to lay my plaint before the king of death. If your majesty, said Tripitaka, is unable to lay your case before the courts of the dead, what makes you come to the world of the living with any hope of redress? Master, he said, how should a wronged ghost dare approach your door? The spirit that wanders at night caught me in a gust of magic wind and blew me along. He said my three years' water misery was ended and that I was to present myself before you. For at your service, he said, there was a great disciple, the Monkey Sage, most able to conquer demons and subdue impostors, 
I beg you to come to my kingdom, lay hands on the magician and make clear the false from the true. Then, master, I would repay you with all that will be mine to give. So then, said Tripitaka, you have come to ask that my disciple should drive out the false magician. Indeed, indeed, he said. My disciple, said Tripitaka, in other ways is not all that he should be, but subduing monsters and evil spirits just suits his powers. I fear, however, that the circumstances make it hard for him to deal with this evil power. Why so? asked the king. Because, said Tripitaka, the magician has used his magic powers to change himself into the image of you. All the officers of your court have gone over to him, and all your ladies have accepted him. My disciple could no doubt deal with them, but he would hesitate to do violence to them. For should he do so, would not he and I be held guilty of conspiring to destroy your kingdom? And what would this be but to paint the tiger and carve the swan? There is still someone of mine at court, he said. Excellent, said Tripitaka. No doubt it is some personal attendant who is guarding some fastness for you. Not at all, he said. It is my own heir apparent. But surely, said Tripitaka, the false magician has driven him away. Not at all, he said. He is in the palace of Golden Bells, in the Tower of the Five Phoenixes, studying with his tutor, or on the steps of the magician's throne. But all these three years he has forbidden the prince to go into the inner chambers of the palace, and he can never see his mother. Why is that? asked Tripitaka. It is the magician's scheme, he said. He fears that if they were to meet, the queen might, in the course of conversation, let drop some word that would arouse the prince's suspicions. So these two never meet, and he all this long time has lived secure. This disaster that has befallen you, no doubt at heaven's behest, is much like my own misfortune. My own father was killed by brigands who seized my mother, and after three months she gave birth to me. I at length escaped from their hands, and by good chance met with kindness from a priest of the Golden Mountain Temple, who brought me up. Remembering my own unhappy state without father or mother, I can sympathise with your prince, who has lost both his parents. But tell me, granted that this prince is still at court, how can I manage to see him? What difficulty in that, he said. Because he is kept under strict control, said Tripitaka, and is not even allowed to see the mother who bore him. How will a stray monk get to him? Tomorrow, the king said, he leaves the courts at daybreak. For what purpose? Tomorrow, early in the morning, with three thousand followers and falcons and dogs, he will go hunting outside the city, and it will certainly be easy for you to see him. You must then tell him what I have told you, and he cannot fail to believe you. He is only a common mortal, said Tripitaka, utterly deceived by the false magician in the palace, and at every turn calling him father and king. 
Why should he believe what I tell him? If that is what worries you, the king said, I will give you a token to show him. And what can you give me? In his hand, the king carried a tablet of white jade, bordered with gold. This he laid before Tripitaka, saying, Here is my token. What thing is this? asked Tripitaka. When the magician disguised himself as me, said the king, this treasure was the only thing he forgot about. When the queen asked what had become of it, he said that the wonder worker who came to make rain took it away with him. If my prince sees it, his heart will be stirred towards me, and he will avenge me. That will do, said Tripitaka. Wait for me a little while I tell my disciple to arrange this matter for you. Where shall I find you? I dare not wait, he said. I must ask the spirit that wanders at night to blow me to the inner chambers of the palace, where I will appear to the queen in a dream and tell her how to work with her son and to conspire with you and your disciple. Tripitaka nodded and agreed, saying, Go, if you will. Then the wronged ghost beat its head on the floor and turned as though to depart. Somehow it stumbled and went sprawling with a loud noise that woke Tripitaka up. He knew that it had all been a dream, and finding himself sitting with the dying lamp in front of him, he hurriedly cried, Disciple! Disciple! Hey, what's that? cried Pigsy, waking up and coming across to him. In the old days when I was a decent chap and had my whack of human flesh whenever I wanted to and all the stinking victuals I needed, that was a happy life indeed. A very different matter from coddling an old cleric on his journey. I thought I was to be an acolyte, but this is more like being a slave. By day I hoist the luggage and lead the horse, by night, I run my legs off, bringing you your pot. No sleep early or late. What's the matter this time? Disciple, said Tripitaka. I was dozing just now at my desk and had a strange dream. At this point, Monkey sat up and coming across to Tripitaka said, Master, dreams come from waking thoughts. Each time we come to a hill before we have ever begun to climb it, you are in a panic about ogres and demons, and you are always brooding about what a long way it is to India, and wondering if we shall ever get there, and thinking about Chang'an, and wondering if you will ever see it again. All this brooding makes dreams. You should be like me. I think only about seeing Buddha in the West, and not a dream comes near me. Disciple, said Tripitaka, this was not a dream of homesickness, no sooner had I closed my eyes than there came a wild gust of wind, and there at the door stood an emperor who said he was the king of Crow Cock. He was dripping from head to foot, and his eyes were full of tears. Then he told Monkey the whole story. "'You need say no more,' said Monkey. "'It is clear enough that this dream came to you in order to bring a little business my way.' No doubt at all that this magician is an ogre who has usurped the throne. 
just let me put him to the test. I don't doubt my stick will make short work of him. Disciple, said Tripitaka. He said the magician was terribly powerful. What do I care how powerful he is, said Monkey. If he had any inkling that Monkey might arrive on the scene, he would have cleared out long ago. Now I come to think of it, said Tripitaka, he left a token. Pigsy laughed. Now, master, he said, you must pull yourself together. A dream's a dream. Now it is time to talk sense again. But Sandy broke in. He who does not believe that straight is straight must guard against the wickedness of good. Let us light torches, open the gate, and see for ourselves whether the token has been left or not. Monkey did indeed open the gate, and there, in the light of the stars and moon, with no need for torches, they saw, lying on the ramp of the steps, a tablet of white jade with gold edges. Pigsy stepped forward and picked it up, saying, Brother, what's this thing? This, said Monkey, is the treasure that the king carried in his hand. It is called a jade tablet. Master, now that we have found this thing, there is no more doubt about the matter. Tomorrow it will be my job to catch this fiend. Dear Monkey, he plucked a hair from his tail, blew on it with magic breath, cried out, Change! And it became a casket, lacquered in red and gold. He laid the tablet in it and said, Master, take this in your hand, and when day comes put on your embroidered cassock and sit reading the scriptures in the great hall. Meanwhile I will inspect that walled city. If I find that an ogre is indeed ruling there, I shall slay him and do a deed by which I shall be remembered here. But if it is not an ogre, we must beware of meddling in the business at all. You are right, said Tripitaka. If, said Monkey, the prince does not go out hunting, then there is nothing to be done. But if the dream comes true, I will bring him here to see you. And if he comes here, how am I to receive him? When I let you know that he is coming, open the casket and wait while I change myself into a little priest two inches long and put me in the casket. When the prince comes here, he will go and bow to the Buddha. Don't you take any notice of the prince or kneel down before him. When he sees that you, a commoner, do not bow down to him, he will order his followers to seize you. You will, of course, let yourself be seized, and beaten too, if they choose to beat you, and bound if they choose to bind you. Let them kill you, indeed, if they want to. They will be well armed, said Tripitaka. They might very well kill me. That is not a good idea at all. It would not matter, said Monkey. I could deal with that. I will see to it that nothing really serious happens. If he questions you, say that you were sent by the Emperor of China to worship Buddha and get scriptures, and that you have brought treasures with you. When he asks what treasures, show him your cassock and say it is the least of the three treasures and that there are two others. Then show him the casket and tell him that there is a treasure within 
that knows what happened 500 years ago, and what will happen in 500 years long hence, and 500 years between. 1,500 years in all of things past and present. Then let me out of the casket, and I will tell the prince what was revealed in the dream. If he believes, I will go and seize the magician, and the prince will be avenged upon his father's murderer, and we shall win renown. But if he does not believe, I will show him the jade tablet. Only I fear he is too young, and will not recognize it. Tripitaka was delighted. An excellent plan, he said. But what shall we call the third treasure? The first is the embroidered cassock. The second, the white jade tablet. What is your transformation to be called? Call it, said Monkey, the baggage that makes kings. Tripitaka agreed and committed the name to memory. Neither disciple nor teacher could sleep. How gladly they would have been able, by a nod, to call up the sun from the mulberry tree where it rests, and by a puff of breath blow away the stars that filled the sky. However, at last it began to grow white in the east, and Monkey got up and gave his orders to Pigsy and Sandy. Do not, he said, upset the other priests in the temple by coming out of your cell and rollicking about. Wait till I have done my work, and then we will go on again together. As soon as he had left them, he turned a somersault and leapt into the air. Looking due west with his fiery eyes, he soon saw a walled and moated city. You may ask how it was that he could see it. Well, it was forty leagues away from the temple, and being so high in the air, he could see as far as that. Going on a little way, and looking closely, he saw that baleful clouds hung round the city, and fumes of discontent surrounded it, and suspended in mid-air, Monkey recited, Were he a true king seated on the throne, then there would be a lucky gleam and fire-coloured clouds. But as it is, a false fiend has seized the dragon seat, and coiling wreaths of black fume tarnish the golden gate. While he was gazing at this sad sight, Monkey suddenly heard a great clanging, and looking down he saw the eastern gate of the city open, and from it a great throng of men and horses come out, truly a host of huntsmen, indeed a brave show. Look at them! At dawn they left the east of the Forbidden City. They parted and rounded up in the field of low grass. Their bright banners opened and caught the sun. Their white palfreys charged abreast the wind. Their skin drums clatter with a loud roll. The hurled spears fly each to its mark. The hunters left the city and proceeded eastwards for twenty leagues towards a high plain. Now, Monkey could see that in the midst of them was a little, little general in helmet and breastplate, in his hand a jeweled sword, riding a bay charger, his bow at his waist. Don't tell me, said Monkey in the air, that is the prince. Let me go and play a trick on him. Dear Monkey, he lowered himself on his cloud, made his way through the ranks of the huntsmen, and when he came to the prince, 
changed himself into a white hare and ran in front of the prince's horse. The prince was delighted, took an arrow from his quiver, strung it and shot at the hare, which he hit. But Monkey had willed the arrow to find its aim, and with a swift grab, just as it was about to touch him, he caught hold of it and ran on. The prince, seeing that he had hit his mark, broke away from his companions and set out in pursuit. When the horse galloped fast, Monkey ran like the wind. When it slowed down, Monkey slowed down. The distance between them remained always the same, and so, bit by bit, he enticed the prince to the gates of the Treasurewood Temple. The hare had vanished, for Monkey went back to his own form, but in the doorpost an arrow was stuck. Here we are, master, said Monkey, and at once changed again into a two-inch priest and hid in the casket. Now, when the prince came to the temple gate and found no hair, but only his own arrow sticking in the gatepost, Very strange, said the prince. I am certain I hit the hair. How is it that the hair has disappeared? But the arrow is here. I think it was not a common hair, but one that had lived too long and changed at last into a sprite. He pulled out the arrow and looking up saw that above the gate of the temple was an inscription which said, Treasure Wood Temple, erected by royal command. Why, of course, said the prince. I remember years ago my father, the king, ordered an officer to take gold and precious stuffs to the priests of this temple so that they might repair the chapel and images. I little thought that I would come here one day like this. A couplet says, Chance brought me to a priest's cell and I listened to his holy talk. From the life of the troubled world, I got half a day's rest. I will go in. The prince leapt from his horse's back and was just going in when 3,000 officers, who were in attendance upon him, came galloping up in a great throng and were soon pouring into the courtyard. The priests of the temple, much astonished, came out to do homage to the prince and escort him to the Buddha Hall to worship the Buddha. The prince was admiring the cloisters when suddenly he came upon a priest who sat there and did not budge when he came past. "'Has this priest no manners?' the prince cried in a rage. "'As no warning was given that I was visiting this place, I could not expect to be met at a distance. But so soon as you saw men at arms approaching the gate, you ought to have stood up. How comes it that you are still sitting here without budging? Seize him! No sooner had he uttered the command than soldiers rushed from the sides, dragged Tripitaka off with them and made ready to bind him hand and foot. But Monkey in the casket soundlessly invoked the guardian spirits, Divas that protect the law and Lu Ting and Lu Cha. I am now on an errand to subdue an evil spirit, but this prince in his ignorance has bade his servants bind my master, and you must come at once to his aid. If he is indeed bound, you will be held responsible. Thus secretly addressed by Monkey, how could they venture to disobey? They set a magic ring about Tripitaka, so that each time anyone tried to lay hands on him, he could not be reached any more than if he had been hedged in with a stout wall. Where do you come from? 
the prince asked at last, that you can cheat us like this, making yourself unapproachable. Tripitaka now came forward and bowed. I have no such art, he said. I am only a priest from China, going to the West to worship Buddha and get scriptures. China, said the prince, although it is called the Middle Land, it is a most destitute place. Tell me, for example, if you have anything of value upon you. There is this cassock on my back, said Tripitaka. It is only a third-class treasure, but I have treasures of the first and second class, which are far superior. A coat like yours, said the prince, that leaves half the body bare. It seems a queer thing to call that a treasure. This cassock, said Tripitaka, although it covers only half my body, is described in a poem. Buddha's coat left one side bare, but it hid the absolute from the world's dust. Its ten thousand threads and thousand stitches fulfilled the fruits of meditation. Is it a wonder that when I saw you come, I did not rise to greet you? You who call yourself a man, yet have failed to avenge a father's death. What wild nonsense this priest is talking, said the prince in a great rage. That half-coat, if it has done nothing else for you, has given you the courage to babble ridiculous fustian. How can my father's death be unavenged, since he is not dead? Just tell me that. Tripitaka came one step forward, pressing the palms of his hands together, and said, Your Majesty, to how many things does man born into the world owe gratitude? To four things, said the prince. To what four things? He is grateful, said the prince, to heaven and earth for covering and supporting him, to the sun and moon for shining upon him, to the king for lending him water and earth, and to his father and mother for rearing him. Tripitaka laughed. To the other three he owes gratitude indeed, he said. But what need has he of a father and mother to rear him? That's all very well for you, said the prince, who are a shaven-headed, disloyal, food-catching wanderer. But if a man had no father or mother, how could he come into the world? Your Majesty, said Tripitaka, I do not know, but in this casket there is a treasure called the baggage that makes kings. It knows everything that happened during the five hundred years long ago, the five hundred years between, and the five hundred years to come. One thousand five hundred years in all. If he can quote a case where there was no gratitude to father and mother, then let me be detained captive here. Show him to me, said the prince. Tripitaka took off the cover, and out jumped Monkey, and began to skip about this way and that. A little fellow like that can't know much, said the prince. Hearing himself described as too small, Monkey used his magic power and stretched himself till he was three feet four inches high. The huntsmen were astonished and said, If he goes on growing like this in a few days, he will be bumping his head against the sky. But when he reached his usual height, Monkey stopped growing. At this point, the prince said to him, Baggage that makes kings. The old priest says you know all things good and ill, in past and present. Do you divine by the tortoise or by the milfoil, or do you decide men's fates by sentences from books? 
Not a bit of it, said Monkey. All I rely on is my three inches of tongue that tells about everything. This fellow talks great nonsense, said the prince. It has always been by the book of changes that mysteries have been elucidated and the prospects of the world decided so that people might know what to pursue and what to avoid. It is not said the tortoise for divination, the milfoil for prognostication, but so far as I can make out, you go on no principle at all. You talk at random about fate and the future exciting and misleading people to no purpose. Now don't be in a hurry, your highness, said Monkey, but listen to me. You are the crown prince of Crowcock. Five years ago there was a famine in your land. The king and his ministers prayed and fasted, and they could not get a speck of rain. Then there came a wizard from Chungnan Mountains, who could call the winds, fetch rain, and turn stone into gold. The king was deceived by his wiles, and hailed him as an elder brother. Is this true? Yes, 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 said the prince. Go on. For the last three years the magician has not been seen, said Monkey. Who is it that has been on the throne? Is this true about the wizard, said the prince. My father did make this wizard his brother, and ate with him, and slept with him. But three years ago, when they were walking in the flower garden and admiring the view, a gust of magic wind that the magician sent blew the jade tablet that the king carried out of his hand, and the magician went off with it straight to the Chungnan Mountains. My father still misses him, and has no heart to walk in the flower garden without him. Indeed, for three years it has been locked up, and no one has set foot in it. If the king is not my father, who is he? <laughs> At this, Monkey began to laugh, and did not stop laughing when the prince asked him what was the matter, till the prince lost his temper. Why don't you say something, he said, instead of standing there laughing? I have quite a lot to say, said Monkey, but I cannot say it in front of all these people. The prince thought this was reasonable, and motioned to the huntsman to retire. The leader gave his orders, and soon the three thousand men and horses were all stationed outside the gates. None of the priests of the temple were about. Monkey stopped laughing and said, Your Highness, he who vanished was the father that begot you. He who sits on the throne is the magician that brought rain. Nonsense, cried the prince. Since the magician left us, the winds have been favouring. The people have been at peace. But according to you, it is not my father who is on the throne. All very well to say such things to me who am young and let it pass. But if my father were to hear you uttering such subversive talk, he would have you seized and torn into ten thousand pieces. He began railing at Monkey, who turned to Tripitaka and said, What is to be done? I have told him, and he does not believe me. Let's get to work. Show him your treasure and then get your papers seen to and go off to India. Tripitaka handed the lacquer box to Monkey, and Monkey, taking it, gave himself a shake, and the box became invisible. For it was in reality one of Monkey's hairs, which he had changed into a box, but now put back again as a hair on his body. But the white jade tablet he presented to the prince. 
A fine sort of priest, the prince exclaimed. You it was who came five years ago disguised as a magician and stole the family treasure and now, disguised as a priest, are offering it back again. Seize him! This command startled Tripitaka out of his wits and, pointing at Monkey, said, It's you, he cried, you wretched horse groom, who have brought this trouble on us for no reason at all. Monkey rushed forward and checked him. Hold your tongue, he said, and don't let out my secrets. I'm not called the baggage that makes kings. My real name is quite different. I should be glad to know your real name, said the prince, that I may send you to the magistrate to be dealt with as you deserve. My name then, said Monkey, is the great Monkey Sage, and I am this old man's chief disciple. I was going with my master to India to get scriptures, and last night we came to this temple and asked for shelter. My master was reading scriptures by night, and at the third watch he had a dream. He dreamt that your father came to him and said that he had been attacked by that magician who in the flower garden pushed him into the eight-cornered crystal well. Then the wizard changed himself into your father's likeness. The court and all the officers were completely deceived. You yourself were too young to know. You were forbidden to enter the inner apartments of the palace and the flower garden was shut up, lest the secret should get out. Tonight your father came and asked me to subdue the false magician. I was not sure that he was an evil spirit, but when I looked down from the sky, I was quite certain of it. I was just going to seize him when I met you and your huntsman. The white hair you shot was me. It was I who led you here and brought you to my master. This is the truth, every word of it. You have recognised the white tablet, and all that remains is for you to repay your father's care and revenge yourself on his enemy. This upset the prince very much. If I do not believe this story, he said to himself, it must in any case have been an unpleasant amount of truth in it. But if I believe it, how can I any longer look upon the present king as my father? He was in great perplexity. If you are in doubt, said Monkey, ride home and ask your mother a question that will decide it. Ask her whether she and the king, as man and wife, are on changed terms these last three years. That is a good idea, said the prince. Just wait while I go and ask my mother. He snatched up the jade tablet and was about to make off when Monkey stopped him, saying, If all your gentlemen follow you back to the palace, suspicions will be aroused, and how can I succeed in my task? You must go back all alone and attract no attention. Do not go in at the main gate, but by the back gate, and when you get to the inner apartments and see your mother, do not speak loudly or clearly, but in a low whisper. For if the magician should hear you, so great is his power that your life and your mother's would be in danger. The prince did as he was told, and as he left the temple, he told his followers to remain there on guard and not to move. I have some business, he said. Wait till I've got to the city and then come on yourselves. Look at him. He gives his orders to the men-at-arms, flies on horseback home to the citadel.
If you do not know whether, on this occasion, he succeeded in seeing his mother, and if so, what passed between them, you must listen to what is told in the next chapter. listening to Monkey, an abridged translation of the great Chinese classic Journey to the West, written by Wu Chung-un, translated by Arthur Whaley, and narrated by Bob Jones. <laughs>